Hello all and warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where every week one man is Mike and his North Wales spare room brings mostly unfamiliar and obscure cases of dark deeds and horrific crimes from all corners of the UK and Ireland to the fore for your very own earbuds. I'm that man, I'm the host Paul, the creator and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are of course you guys, the enthusiasts who make doing the show possible and worthwhile. And it's great as ever having you all joining me here today, where I hope that the episode finds you all good and well. Now before we begin this week, I feel I should explain that the past few weeks have seen a few staggered release dates for episodes of the show. While I always try to be consistent when I do release weekly because I think it's important to keep yourself a target and a deadline like that, sometimes real non-true crime in life gets in the way, doesn't it? What can you say? And the past few weeks, I've worked so many nights that I'm starting to turn into a vampire, I tell you. I set myself really high standards for the show and I wouldn't be happy just putting a filler episode out for the sake of it. So for the sake of a few staggered days to maintain these standards... Well, I can live with that. The hard work's always worth it in the end. Which kind of brings me on to another thing that I'll mention this week, because it's topical in true crime circles right now, and a lot of people have approached me asking my thoughts on it. Plagiarism. Now, I won't mention any names, but what I will say is this. Loads and loads of work goes into doing shows such as these, and sometimes I really don't think it could be appreciated just how much unless you do them. So if somebody comes and blatantly rips off your own hard work just so they can hear the sound of their own voice, well, if you do that, then you are a shy talk, basically. If somebody else's work helps with your own, then that's fantastic because nobody reinvents the wheel doing these shows after all, do they? but give that person the credit they deserve for either with a mention in the episode or in a show notes reference. It takes very, very little effort and it goes a massively long way. And then there's no risk of episodes having to be deleted because you've been called out on anything or the validity of your sources has suddenly come into question at some guff like that. Or you wouldn't lose any subscribers because you're a lazy cheating twat, would you? So simple. It's not cool at all plagiarism if it happens, and if you get caught doing it, well then you deserve to be shamed for it. Do your own work, or don't bother at all. Now then that I've come down off my soapbox, thanks very much to those who've submitted queries for the Ask Me Anything episode that I have planned for September as a Patreon feature for subscribers. I've had some absolutely great stuff so far, and the offer's still there. If any of you guys would like to know anything about the show, how it's done, why I choose the cases I do, etc, etc, then you can get in touch through the usual channels to let me know, and I'll curate the best ones for me, my glass of wine, or my glass or two of wine, and the webcam. And I'm trying really hard not to sound like Leslie Grant from their UK listeners. I don't know whether it's working or not, but I'm not sucking my finger or anything. Coming up also soon is this series' trilogy of the show, and look out also for a collaboration episode between myself and Caprice at the Unseen podcast in the not-too-distant future. Plus I've got a chat booked in with Bob and Nadine over at Twisted Britain about a possible joint project for us guys to do as well. So busy as ever, but productive and exciting times nonetheless. So this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the case that's featured is one of the ones that's proper got to me. Well, all of the cases do, but this one has more than others. I've steeped myself in the details of it while I was writing the episode and researching it, of course, 
and it's one of the ones that will stay more prominently with me. It involves the horrific murder of a young girl. Now, it wasn't a case I remembered or I was familiar with at all, but it was one that I found by chance when I was researching an earlier episode this series, The Judge and the Grudge. It's a tale that's got bizarre elements to it, but overall, it's one of true horror and tragedy, with one of the most savage killers that I've ever come across to date. The episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events involving the murder of a child that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion as always whilst listening, folks. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as this week we head back to 1989 to the UK county of Lancashire for a case I've entitled The Monster of Goose Meadow. Now, how old were you back in 1989? Were you even alive back then? And if you were a youngster at the time, do you remember how exciting the school summer holidays were, or can you not think further back than neighbours and new kids on the block? I was 11 years old back in 1989. I remember being out playing for all hours during the holidays, doing all sorts of exciting things, pretty much without a care in the world. It's a time before you have things like work and bills and heartaches. Anything like that really troubles you. Now, I'm not going to sound like a proper codger here and be so remiss as to say, ooh, it was a different world back then, because it really wasn't a different world, was it? People just didn't seem to be as conscious of the very real fears and darkness that have always existed. Children did play out at a young age, and parents would let them, no worries. And to kids, it was just one big adventure. I remember exactly myself being off for hours, playing with friends, the other end of the village where I'm from, streetwise enough to know not to wander off too far, and that darkness did of course exist, but still carefree enough to enjoy playing out whilst adhering to a curfew. And I find it very sad that days such as that are long past now. I really, really do. Back in 1989, nine-year-old Annette Wade was no exception to this. It was with Annette playing out in mind that her parents, Brian and Mary Wade, had moved with their only child to the semi-detached house just at the turn of 1989, so that their daughter could be safer. They'd previously lived in a flat on a busy main road, and had had concerns about the danger of this and letting Annette out to play without supervision so had decided on a move to a safer place and had moved to the house on Blackpool Old Road in the Lancashire village of Carlton as it had once belonged to Annette's grandparents. It was a house Annette was familiar with as she'd often been to visit her grandparents here but it had been empty since their unfortunate passing and so Brian, Mary and Annette moved into here and their fears were eased. With its views across the open fields towards the imposing stance of Blackpool Tower five miles in the distance, they happily let the popular girl out to play with her friends. Annette was a conscientious and trusting girl, but a bit of a tomboy at heart with a love of playing outdoors, and together with the other children who lived nearby, whom she'd soon made friends with, she quickly embraced the newfound freedom that she had. From making dens and being off racing about on her beloved red BMX bike, to simply hanging around the playground on the neighbouring Cotton Hall playing fields, playing out was just the mutt's nuts. Annette's parents recognised this need for her to have her freedom and to learn street smarts, but to also instil a sense of responsibility in Annette, and so had come to a compromise. She was allowed to go off out playing, 
but had strict boundaries and times that she had to be home by. To this extent, they bought Annette a digital watch that beeped on the hour so she wouldn't lose track of time as she played out. It was one of her proudest possessions, and one of the first things that she'd showed to the new friend that she'd made only a few days before, a friend who was a lot older than her, but who had intrigued her almost from the very start, from the fact that he was an adult who talked to her like a friend would, right down to the hen's feathers that he wore tucked into the formerly white, but now grubby headband that he habitually wore. On Tuesday, July the 18th, the day before school broke up for the six weeks of the summer holidays, Brian and Mary Wade collected Annette from Breck Primary School gates at 3.15pm. It was usually Mary who collected Annette by herself, but Brian had decided to accompany his wife as he'd just finished work from his job as a line manager on the dreaded 6-2 shift, well, it is personally for me anyway, hate it, at the former Blackpool Symbol Biscuits factory. When the family arrived home, Annette raced upstairs to her bedroom, where she changed out of her school uniform into a t-shirt, Bermuda shorts and white socks, before putting her trainers on and rushing back downstairs. She was itching to get out to play, and kept asking her mum what time it was. She asked so much that Mary reminded Annette of the watch that they'd bought for her, and so Annette raced back upstairs to grab it from her dressing table, as almost an afterthought, grabbing also a badge that she'd been given as part of a campaign that had visited her school some weeks before. The badge, which Annette proudly pinned to her t-shirt, read, Don't talk to strangers. It was 3.55pm when Annette left the house, telling her parents that she was heading out to play with her friend Aaron, who lived a short distance up and across the road from the Wade family. Watching Annette get onto her red BMX, Brian Wade went out and saw his daughter safely across the road and watched as she cycled off up Blackpool Old Road towards where Aaron lived. It was the last time Brian saw his daughter alive. Instead of stopping to call for Aaron that afternoon, Annette bypassed her friend's house and continued further up the road before turning off right up the rough track that led in the direction of Cotton Hall playing fields. Earlier that day in school, she'd been asked to play out after tea by her school friends but had declined, saying that she had a special meeting but declining to give anything else away. She had another friend in mind to spend time with that afternoon after school and had a pre-arranged meeting at the playing fields. A large agricultural area just off the nearby B5268 Blackpool Road is the area of Woodhouse Farm, which is linked to Cotton Hall playing fields by a tunnel formed where a dyke passed beneath the main Blackpool to Preston railway line. When Annette arrived at the playing fields just after 4pm, a new friend was waiting for her at the playground, which was very near to here. They sat and chatted for a short time, then walked together from here and headed off through the tunnel towards the farm fields, Annette wheeling her red BMX as she walked alongside her taller, older companion. Just after half past four the same afternoon, a local resident named David Boardman was walking through the fields of Woodhouse Farm when he heard a muted scream come from somewhere nearby. 
He looked around upon hearing this, but he couldn't see anyone in the vicinity, and thinking it was simply children playing and the sound had been carried over from the direction of the playing fields, he continued on his way. About 40 minutes later, two anglers arrived at one of the ponds in the field behind Woodhouse Farm to prepare for an evening's fishing, but just after arriving and setting up, were distracted by smoke that they saw rising from the far side of the field, an area known locally as Goose Meadow. Straining to see the source of the fire, they then heard a loud bang and caught sight of a man with a haversack climbing through the hedgerow into the adjacent field and running off where they lost sight of him. Now in July 1989, the county was in the grip of a warm, dry spell and the two men were concerned that the fire that they'd spotted could possibly spread to the dry grass nearby and cause an inferno, so they went over to investigate further. By the time they'd arrived at the seat of the fire, which was in a ditch beside a natural hollow formed by intersecting hedgerows, the smoke was that thick and acrid that the two men could hardly make out their surroundings, let alone see exactly what was burning. All they could make out was that it appeared to be a pile of burning clothes or material that was aflame, and a bicycle. The loud bang that they'd heard was the sound of a tyre exploding in the flames. Rushing to Woodhouse Farm, they alerted the farmer, Bob Aspton, who quickly filled a milk churn with water, loaded it onto his tractor and set off in the vehicle the 300 yards to the remote corner of his land where the fire blazed, cursing the kids who he automatically assumed had set a fire out of boredom or vandalism. At the scene, he realised that it wasn't the hedgerows that were alight as he'd suspected, but that there appeared to be a pile of clothing, branches and leaves about two feet high on fire on the nearby path, a bicycle entwined within it. Bob filled a bucket from the churn and swiftly extinguished the blaze, and once the embers were dampened and the smoke had begun to clear, removed the bicycle from the top of the ashes and began to clear away the leaves and twigs. As he did so, he was confronted with a horrific sight. Underneath the pile lay the charred, mutilated remains of a small child. Unable to comprehend what he saw before him, because you can't even begin to picture something so horrific, can you? Bob Aspton raced back to the farmhouse and told his wife Margaret to contact police urgently. She did so and they arrived shortly, where the scene was sealed off and examined. A cursory glance at the natural hollow showed several empty tins and bottles, a caller gas cylinder and barbecue that it transpired later being stolen from one of the outbuildings at Woodhouse Farm, several cartons of lighter fuel were lying about, and several hen's feathers. But not one police officer could take their eyes for long off the pitiful sight that lay before them. On a makeshift funeral pyre lay a tiny figure, so badly scorched that at first they couldn't even tell if it was a boy or a girl. It took a post-mortem conducted later that evening to discover that the girl had been raped and stabbed three times in the neck and once in the left side of her chest before being placed onto a crude funeral pyre, her body wrapped in blue fabric and covered with branches and leaves before being set alight. But looking there at that moment, police didn't even know who the victim was. That was shortly to change.
By 8pm that evening, Brian and Mary Wade were at first cross, but rapidly more worried that Annette had not returned home by her curfew. As Brian set off to drive around the district looking for his daughter, which was unsuccessful, as soon as he arrived home without Annette, a distraught Mary contacted the police. Police receiving the call, of course, quickly drew the heartbreaking link between the horrific discovery just two hours earlier and half a mile away and the Wade's telephone call reporting their nine-year-old daughter missing. And it was so within an hour that a distraught and disbelieving Brian Wade was being conveyed to nearby Leighton Mortuary, where he faced the unimaginable task of identifying his precious daughter's body. Now that really does have to be unimaginable, doesn't it? As I've said here on the show, sadly, so many times before, as society, we generally place such value on children, such care and protection, so to have to see your own child in such a way, well, you must scarcely be able to believe that such horror is actually happening. My heart proper went out to the Wade family when I was researching this episode. I'm not a parent myself, but that isn't the only reason that I couldn't begin to imagine something like that. It must truly be the most awful thing a person can ever face, mustn't it? Annette Wade had met a killer less than half a mile from her home, and although it was unknown at the time, her killer was already miles away. A 50-strong team of detectives, led by Detective Chief Superintendent John Ashton of Lancashire Police, immediately launched a murder inquiry which hit the ground running and produced rapid results. As house-to-house inquiries got underway, the area remained sealed off under police cordon once Annette's body had been removed from the scene for identification and post-mortem. Several items from the scene were taken away for forensic examination, and early the following morning, Detective Chief Superintendent Ashton outlined the exact horror of the crime where he told a packed press conference. The life of a small child has been taken to satisfy some callous killer's sexual gratification. Her body was very badly burned on the left-hand side and there'd been some attempt to cover it. It appears the person responsible for killing this young child had tried to build some sort of funeral pyre but thankfully, he didn't have a great deal of success. I am deeply saddened and don't know how one describes a person who can perpetrate this kind of offence on a trusting, loving child of nine who's just setting out in her life. I don't know how they would have felt had they seen the reaction of Annette's parents last night. Every police officer in Britain is looking for the man who committed this evil crime. Now I can think of several ways to describe such a person. I really can, as I'm sure you guys can too. That same morning at Breck Primary School in Poulton's Foldry Avenue where Annette had been a pupil, headteacher Frank Tyus broke the dreadful news to Annette's friends and classmates in a specially held assembly. He later told the Lancashire Evening Post newspaper, I don't think any parents will be letting their children out tonight. Since joining us last September, Annette has been a friendly, popular member of our school community with a cheerful smile for everybody. We all miss her very much. 
A sense of horror developed instantly throughout the community, where at the school gates, parents clutched their children close to them as several openly wept, numb and unable to comprehend the horror that had struck their midst. Such an awful crime does of course have a massive rippling effect on any community. I mean, you only need to think of news footage that you've seen of the residents of places such as Soham after the murders of Holly and Jessica by Ian Huntley, or Llandidno after the horrific murder of Sophie Hook that I covered on the show here a couple of series back. And you have a picture of just how much an awful crime such as this devastates a community. There's no other word to describe it devastates. So the communities of Carlton and nearby Poulton were no exception. Parents and children were left sickened, frightened and outraged at the evil that a faceless monster had brought into their lives. It was summed up by local resident Marion Herbert, self a mother of three, who told the Lancashire Post, What sort of world is this when innocent children can't play in peace as we used to when we were children for fear of being picked off like prey by evil men and women? Evil indeed. But evil wasn't to remain without a face for very long. Forensic examination of the debris found near to where Annette's charred remains were found, empty soup tins and cans of coke, had quickly revealed the fingerprints of a known criminal in the Lancashire area, a man who had a lengthy criminal record, albeit for offences of petty theft and robbery. With their number one suspect now identified, on the 20th of July, Detectives took the unusual step of publicly naming 31-year-old John Jeffrey Healy, also known as John Jeffrey Hyam, as the man that they wished to interview. This unusual move followed discussions between murder squad detectives and John Bates, the chief prosecutor for Lancashire and Cumbria, about any possible legal repercussions for doing so. It was agreed that there could be no question of contempt of court as a warrant had not at that time been issued for Healy's arrest. But there were concerns that after his arrest, which would of course happen if and when he was spotted, barring him volunteering himself at a police station for interview, Healy could claim that the release of his name and photograph beforehand would prejudice any jury against him and so deny him a fair trial. Detective Superintendent Ashton later justified his decision, saying, We have the right to release a suspect's name if it's in the public interest, and this most certainly was. What would people have said if we'd not released it and he'd murdered someone else? After seeing the body of Annette Wade, it was a very real fear indeed. Detective Superintendent Ashton explained further, I acted in the public interest and could not take the chance of another child being perhaps badly injured or indeed killed. Had something tragic happened and I'd not taken that course of action, I would never have forgiven myself. Aside from the police mugshot of Healy that was sent out to the media nationwide, details of the crude tattoos that adorned his arms, hands, torso and back were also provided. This guy certainly wasn't any Michael Schofield. And by late that afternoon, Healy's face was on all of the front pages of the regions and national newspapers and featured on all of the national television news bulletins. So John Healy was now Britain's most wanted man. But who was he? 
John Jeffrey Healy was born on the 9th of May 1959 in the bedroom of his maternal grandmother's home in the village of Clown in Derbyshire. One of 18 children, because there obviously wasn't too many TV channels back then, his parents had separated before he was even born and he was fostered as a baby. He was later to return to his natural mother, but was a problem child even from an early age, deemed to be completely out of control and one who found mixing with other children difficult. Constantly in trouble, he was taken into care from the age of five, and this began a cycle in which Healy would return home from the care system for short periods, but would then inevitably cause trouble and prove to be unruly, which led to him being returned to the children's home. The family finally upped and moved to Manchester in the late 1960s, when Healy burned down a haystack in Clown, but shortly after this, Healy found himself once again back in the care system. His first serious brush with the law came just a year later, when in 1970 he appeared before the juvenile bench at Lytham Magistrates Court to face charges of breaking and entering holiday chalets, for which he was handed a conditional discharge. At the time, he was a pupil at Warbreck High School, which is now Blackpool's Unity Academy, but following this was moved to Red Bank Approved School and was over the early 1970s to make five more court appearances on various charges of theft and burglary before being moved to a special school in Cumbria. Following leaving this school, Healy was to spend his formative years up to adulthood living in a series of children's homes in the Blackpool area where he also notched up more than 20 further appearances in court, mainly for burglaries and attempted thefts. In 1978, he received his first custodial prison sentence of eight months for robbery after he stole cash from a 16-year-old boy at Knife Point. Following his release, Healy found work as a builder's labourer and moved down to London, where he met a woman named Linda Francis in a pub in Croydon. Shortly afterwards, the couple married, but the marriage wasn't to last long at all, ending in separation before 1980 had arrived. Linda was to many years later recall, I really didn't know him until we were married, but then I discovered he was a loony with a split personality. He beat me with his fists until I had to leave. Following the collapse of his marriage, Healy gravitated back once again to the Blackpool area, where he continued his now-established pattern of living in guesthouses and cheap lodgings, supported by casual labouring coupled with petty crime, and over the years serving three further jail terms, spending a total of four years and nine months of the 1980s imprisoned. After completing an 18-month prison sentence for robbery in Hull Prison, Healy had headed back to Blackpool late in 1988, where he for a period became a voluntary patient in the psychiatric unit of Blackpool's Victoria Hospital. He left here after several weeks and drifted between a series of bedsits and guesthouses before by May 1989 he found himself lodging with Lawrence and Mary Sherry in a room at their terraced home at 156 Corn Street in Blackpool. During his time lodging here, Healy cut a memorable figure around the area, as with his long lank hair, his crude but extensive tattoos and his camouflage trousers, and the bizarre sight of a headband adorned with feathers, yeah, a feathered headband, 
he'd strut around swinging a long chain from his waistband, attached to which were keys and a knife that he habitually carried. Now while this strange sight terrified some of the smaller local children, others who were a bit older and a bit more scally took him as a figure of fun, and out of the devilment that you get up to as a kid, because I certainly did anyway, they'd often shout Rambo at him before running away trying to get a leg off him. So when he wasn't wandering around like a hungry Vietnam veteran, out-of-work Healy would spend his days either lounging on the front garden wall of number 156, bare-chested and enjoying the summer sun, or sat on a bench outside nearby St. Thomas Parish Church, leching, whistling and commenting at young girls as they left nearby Devonshire Road School. In fact, he seemed to be drawn to children. Healy would stop and talk to many of them, and often bought sweets for the local children at Ted's grocery store on the corner of Corn Street and Selborne Road, which he'd dish out as he spoke to them, often loitering around the children's play area near the high-rise flats in the nearby district of Leighton. But old habits die hard, and it wasn't long after arriving in his Corn Street lodgings that Healy was in trouble again, this time for his favoured habit, burglary. One night in late June 1989, as he climbed up the drain pipe outside Ted's corner shop, just 30 yards away from his lodgings, Healy was unaware that he was being watched. Silently, he squeezed through an open upstairs window and into the flat above the shop, where inside, shopkeeper Graham Elliott was fast asleep with his wife Kerry and their young son Gary. The family heard nothing as Healy crept through the flat and pocketed two keys and a number of trinkets before moving silently down the stairs and letting himself out of the door, right into the waiting arms of police, who'd been quickly dialed by the elderly neighbour living across from the shop who'd spotted Healy shinning up the drainpipe. Caught in the act, Healy was arrested and within hours appeared in court where he was remanded in custody for five days. At his next court appearance following this, he was granted conditional bail but requiring him to remain at his lodgings nearby and adhere to a strict nighttime curfew. Following Healy's burglary of the corner grocery store, police had searched his room at the Sherry household and discovered an assortment of weaponry, including a selection of knives, an axe and a samurai sword. He was subsequently kicked out of his lodgings but seemingly drawn to the area, he began sleeping in a squat just a few doors further along Corn Street. He'd hang around here, often calling in at the former Victory Pub, which no longer exists and is indeed a convenience store today, for half a lager which he would drink silently, speaking to few or no customers in the pub at all. And few ever wanted to bother with him really, finding him trouble and an oddball, although they took to calling Healy Johnny Comanche, because of his habit of wearing feathers that were tucked into the grubby white headband that he habitually wore. Now this was a nickname that Healy reveled in, as those who'd speak to him would soon find out. It was get-up that he wore simply to draw attention to himself, because he loved being the centre of it. As it is surely with any dickhead who dresses like that, isn't it? 
Healy was always ready to regale anyone who'd listened to him with increasingly tall tales of how he was part Native American of Canadian descent through his mother from the famous Chief Cochise, believing that he embodied the soul of a Native American brave who'd been slaughtered by early white settlers, and talking of his desire to return to Canada to join his tribe to carry on the fight. Then, when the mood saw fit to him, he'd go polar opposite and would claim that he had royal blood in him, being related to both British and Japanese royal families. His father, he would even claim, was none other than the late Duke of Windsor. I think more of a lying bastard who lived in cloud cuckoo land myself than royalty-like. But to the parents who lived around the Corn Street and Devonshire Road areas of Blackpool, where earlier that summer Healy had taken to hanging around, he was far from gentry or nobility. They believed that he was a dangerous pervert with a fixation on underage girls. More than one complaint had been made by parents about Healy making improper remarks to their children, and on three separate occasions, he'd attempted to entice a nine-year-old girl up to the room of his lodgings to watch pornographic videos with him. He'd approached the youngster just a few yards from her home in nearby Addison Crescent, and each time it was only the actions of her 12-year-old brother that had stopped the girl from being led away by Healy after he jumped in and managed to drag his sister away to safety. By the 3rd of July, enough had become enough, and people had had a sickener of Healy's bizarre, menacing behaviour. It came to a head when he'd followed a 13-year-old girl home from school, scaring her so much that she ducked into a nearby telephone box and made out that she was contacting the police. Now the ploy worked because Healy walked away, but when the terrified girl had rushed home and told her parents that he'd menaced her, it spread like wildfire and a group of the local parents went to confront Healy about his behaviour. Finding him loitering around outside this Corn Street squat, as they attempted to remonstrate with him about things, Healy produced a baseball bat and swung at them with it. He was threatening enough that he caused the group to retreat to the safety of nearby Ted's grocery store, where they barricaded themselves in and watched through the door as Healy ranted and raved on the pavement outside. Police were called as a result of this, and Healy was arrested for the second time in as many weeks. The following day, he appeared in Blackpool Magistrates Court on a charge of possessing an offensive weapon and of threatening behaviour, and was remanded in custody. He was freed on bail two days later, and a court date to answer these charges was set for the 13th of July. But it wasn't to be that long before Healy next had a brush with the law. Just three days later, Healy was arrested once again when one of the local parents spotted him sitting on a bench near St. Thomas Parish Church next to an eight-year-old girl. He had his arm around the girl and was talking to two young boys on a bicycle. Police arrived and picked Healy up, asking some of the other people in the local area to identify him, bearing in mind his previous arrests but many wouldn't, such was the fear that Healy had instilled in the local area with this menacing, concerning behaviour. After the parents who'd contacted police did identify Healy, he was arrested and once again, for the second time that week, found himself hauled before Blackpool magistrates, where this time he was charged with conduct likely to cause a breach of the peace. 
Police asked the Crown Prosecution Service here to oppose any bail application in an attempt to defuse the potential powder keg situation that was building. But technically, because a conviction for the offence didn't carry punishment comprising of a custodial sentence, and he already had court dates for the charges for his previous arrests, Healy could not be held. He was kept in custody for a 24-hour period whilst legal discussion concerning him was undertaken, and then on July the 11th, Healy was sent to live in a bail hostel in Blackburn. Then two days later, he absconded from here and went missing. Ever since he'd failed to return to the bail hostel, Healy had made his way to the Carlton area, where he'd been living rough in a makeshift den in the corner of Goose Meadow, the fields belonging to Woodhouse Farm. With his strange attire, his scruffy and unkempt appearance and wild staring eyes, the former Territorial Army soldier stood out in the quiet community. During the few days he was camped out in the area, he'd make daily visits to Carlton Crematorium to fill up his containers with water from the outside tap used by mourners to fill urns, and became a familiar sight in the neighbourhood post office, where he'd stock up on cigarettes, chocolate bars, soup and pot noodles. Mostly, everyone commented on how menacing the stranger seemed though, for much the same as he'd done only a few miles away when he was squatting in Corn Street, Healy's main pastime seemed to be watching the children who played in the playground on the Cotton Hall playing fields and attempting to strike up conversations or lure each with ever-increasing tall tales or bribes. He attempted to entice one trio of 14-year-old girls with a thick wad of money that he'd produced from his pocket and flashed at them, claiming that he was a descendant of a Scottish king and that he had Spaniard blood as his mother was Spanish. He told a separate group that he was only there to grab a glimpse of the girls' legs as they played netball in the playground. Freaked out by this, as you would be by such a proper comment as that, wouldn't you? The girls abandoned their game and made their excuses to leave, with Healy merely replying, It's nice meeting you, I hope to meet you again sometime. I somehow, somehow, don't think that they really shared his sentiment there, do you? So, although Healy to most people greatly concerned them, to others he strangely fascinated them, and the strange man living rough like some sort of pet tramp with the feathers in his headband was quite a novelty for the children of Carlton. Word of Healy's den in the fields around Goose Meadow spread quickly amongst the local children, and they became anxious to get a glimpse of the strange, mysterious figure who it was rumoured dressed like and claimed to be a Native American, and who lived like an outdoor lager enthusiast. They would sneak down into the fields nearby to spy on him, and watch him from a distance, would crane their necks looking for the telltale plume of smoke from his campfire as Healy would prepare his meals. Then the braver, older children would sneak further forward for a better look, and were able to make out exactly what the stranger called home. The makeshift den that Healy called home was constructed simply of a dirty blue piece of fabric that was stretched on a rope between two trees to form a crude tent. Underneath it lay an orange and brown sleeping bag and nailed to a fence post nearby were the tail feathers of a bird. The spot Healy had chosen nestled between two dense hedgerows which met at the top forming a tunnel which made a natural hide at the side of a nearby ditch. 
One 11-year-old who'd crept forward to see the den later recalled, We came across his den and saw a man playing with a knife. We were scared but excited too. It was like an adventure. We ran away but later we went back and spoke to him. He seemed quite nice at first but told us to watch out because the farmer would get him into trouble if he was found. Later we saw a man walking his dog nearby so we ran back and warned him. We knew it was all a big secret and that he shouldn't be there. And it was right about this time also that Healy first encountered Annette Wade. Annette had been out on her bike one afternoon after school and had stopped on the playing field swings to play alone when she was approached by a man dressed entirely in black who sat down on the grass about 10 yards away from her. Taking out a bottle, between swigs from it he started talking to the youngster, asking her a name and complimenting her on a smart bicycle. Before long, the trusting girl had joined in with the conversation and had jumped down from the swings and gone over to sit with Healy. The two then chatted away quite happily, with him spinning his yarns to Annette about his Native American heritage and his royal bloodline, until two of Annette's friends arrived and she went back to playing on the swings now she had pals of her own age to play with. Healy remained watching the children play until Annette stood up on the swing and fell off, which although she hadn't injured herself, was enough to make her tire of playing out and decide to leave. He sat there watching her cycle home. In the few minutes that he and Annette had spent talking, he'd already tricked his way into the little girl's confidence. Over the space of the next few days, after school Annette would head over to the playing fields each day looking for a newfound friend to spend time with, and sure enough, Healy would be there waiting. They would talk and joke, and to cement their friendship, He'd even given Annette three twenty-pence coins, which she took home and told her mother that she'd been given by a friend, which in the child's minds wasn't a lie as such, it was just a little secret that it was a much older friend. In fact, Annette became so trusting of her newfound friend that she even returned the favour and gave a present of her own, the gold-coloured cloth bag that she kept a recorder in. To Annette, the strange man that she'd met, who she'd exchanged such sentimental tokens with, was her secret friend. And although other children in the area knew of him, they certainly didn't hear of him from the lips of Annette. She didn't tell a soul or breathe a word about him to her classmates at Breck Primary School. So the reason that Annette was so excited and anxious to get out after school that Tuesday, July the 18th, was because the day before, Healy had offered to show the schoolgirl his den the following afternoon and the temptation of seeing that was too much to resist. Annette could barely contain her excitement all that day in school and Healy himself spent the day preparing for their afternoon rendezvous. He'd been thinking about it ever since he'd first encountered Annette. That lunchtime he'd walked into Poulton and had his long lank hair washed and cut at the former Peter Jay's salon in the high street. As hairdresser Jacqueline Saunders washed his hair pre-cut, Healy tried some of his best moves in an attempt to chat her up, asking her to meet him for a drink later that evening, which she politely declined. Then after having his locks chopped, he laughed and joked with hairdresser Linda Brown that she'd not made him look rough enough, which she responded to jokingly by saying that he didn't have enough hair left to do anything else with. 
Shorn now of his lank Rambo-style locks, Healy paid the £4.50 bill from the same big roll of notes that he'd been flashing at the schoolgirls in the park only days before. Following his haircut, he'd pose for photographs in a nearby photographic booth before then heading to the Poulton Village Post Office where he bought a temporary passport for the price of £7.50 telling postmistress Doreen Thompson that he needed the passport because he was planning a trip across to France. With his preparations now made, Healy collected some soft drinks, chocolate, beer and cigarettes and added them to his shopping. He paid his bill in full, then left the post office and sauntered back to the playing fields, where he spent the rest of the afternoon lazing about in the July sunshine, waiting for Annette, who he knew would be excited to see him. And the dark mind of John Healy couldn't wait to see her either. Sure enough, shortly after 4pm, he caught sight of the now familiar figure on a red bicycle. On offering her a soft drink, the two walked off side by side towards the tunnel that led to Goose Meadow. Now the exact order of events of what happened next are unclear, but at some point only shortly after this, Healy had attacked Annette in his makeshift den, only giving her a chance to let out a muffled scream. She was stabbed viciously four times in the neck and chest and was raped. In what order that occurred, I don't know. I don't even want to think about it. With his deviant bloodlust now sated, Healy quickly gathered together his meagre belongings that amounted to just two rucksacks and a bedroll and then put the next part of his horrific plan into action. After raping and killing Annette, Healy had wrapped a mutilated lifeless corpse in a makeshift shroud fashioned from the length of blue curtain that had formed his shelter and had placed the bundle on top of a hastily arranged funeral pyre. But the burning of little Annette's body on his makeshift bonfire wasn't just a means of covering up the evidence of his horrific crime that he'd committed. In his warped mind, he was going to carry out a traditional Native American funeral by cremating his dead on a burning pyre. He covered Annette's remains further with twigs and leaves, and then added lighter fuel to the pyre and set it alight before fleeing. No words, eh? That's what makes you Britain's most wanted man. Then the next stage of Healy's horrific plan kicked in. Two nights before, as pensioner Grace May had slept in a bungalow in Thirlmere Road in Carlton, Healy had forced his way silently into her home and had stolen cash, jewellery and the keys to a metallic green mini-metro. He had pushed the car off the driveway and out to the cul-de-sac before starting the engine and driving it a few hundred yards further down to a residence car park in Sherborne Court where he parked and left the vehicle. The innocuous green metro was to be his getaway car. Now, as he fled across the fields with smoke and the sound of the tyre exploding as the flames engulfed it in the distance, Healy ran towards Sherbourne Court, only about half a mile away across the land of Woodhouse Farm. But almost at the very same time that Healy was committing his ghastly crime and setting his macabre funeral pyre, an elderly resident from the flat in Sherborne Court, Joan Bennett, was on the phone to police reporting a concern at the strange car which had been parked outside the block for two days. 
Police had duly arrived shortly after five and established that the metallic green metro that had been bothering Joan was indeed a locally stolen vehicle, and after securing the doors, had returned to duty and left it awaiting the arrival of a fingerprint expert. Joan, meanwhile, having discovered who the car belonged to, telephoned Mrs May to let her know that her car was safe, which was a relief for Grace as she'd only bought the vehicle a week previously and relied heavily upon it to get her around because she was disabled. The second that Joan had put the phone down to Grace, however, she looked out the window and saw a scruffy, unshaven figure unlocking the car boot and putting two rucksacks and a bedroll inside. A woman of courage and action, Joan was immediately out of the door and right up to the driver's window because by this time the man was sat in the car ready to drive off. After she remonstrated with him to get out because that was categorically not his vehicle, Healy stared back at her and told her, perhaps eerily, perhaps menacingly, before driving off, Yes it is, see, I've got the keys. Police had missed the man who, within a space of hours, would become Britain's most wanted by just mere minutes. Yet Healy was seemingly in no hurry to leave the Blackpool area. Whilst police were launching their murder inquiry from the hide in Goose Meadow, Healy was having a carefree pint in the Stanley Arms in the resort before heading over to call at the home of a friend where he showed off the green metro and told her that he'd bought it earlier that day for the sum of £800. He then asked her if she fancied going for a drink with him and spending the night in the car, but surprisingly, because what girl could resist being wooed in such a way, eh? She declined his offer. The two instead went to a nearby cafe where after a meal of toast and milkshakes, Healy said goodbye to his friend and finally took to the road to make his escape. After hitting the M6 motorway at 10pm, Healy continued southwards until he stopped the stolen metro at Keel Services to buy cigarettes, where he also picked up hitchhiker David Turner. The two men continued a southbound journey before stopping once again at Toddington Services on the M1 to refuel. Here, however, Healy had filled the metro with diesel fuel instead of petrol and inevitably broke down shortly afterwards. By the time they did, the two men were in Swiss Cottage in North London, where Healy abandoned the metro in a bus lane on the Finchley Road, bade farewell to David Turner and vanished into the night. The following morning at 8am, the green metro was discovered where Healy had abandoned it and a parking ticket was placed on the windscreen. It was noted a strange car to be abandoned as it was considered to be one for a disabled person to use, apparent by the yellow disability parking permits in the driver's door well, the aluminium crutch that was visible on the back seat and the walking frame that could be seen in the hatchback's rear. Within minutes of inputting the vehicle's registration number, B970WBV, onto the police national computer, however, its significance was realised and the car was sealed off, awaiting impoundment and forensic examination. The stolen vehicle and Annette's murder had quickly been linked the previous evening. But Healy wasn't in the London area. He wasn't even in the country. After he dumped the metro in Swiss Cottage, Healy had made his way into central London and onto Victoria Station, where he caught a direct train to the ferry port of Dover. 
Once at the coastal port, using his own name, he paid £12 for a day ticket to Boulogne and boarded the 12.30pm ferry to France, where he successfully crossed the channel and hitched his way to Marseille. Back in Lancashire though, detectives had already identified the possibility that Healy may have headed here following the report from postmistress Doreen Thompson about him buying a temporary passport and letting slip his planned destination. It was believed that Healy was heading to the Versailles area of Paris to visit an ex-girlfriend of his, who was later found to be living back in Britain at the time. So an all-ports warning to be on the lookout for Healy was issued across all cross-channel ferry terminals. Passenger manifestos that were checked revealed his name as a confirmed traveller and New Scotland Yard and Interpol were alerted to the wanted fugitive by Lancashire police. 10,000 posters bearing Healy's photograph and details were printed in both English and French and distributed in the areas and appeals were made to British lorry drivers and holidaymakers heading across the channel at the busy start of the school summer holidays to keep a sharp lookout for the wanted man whom the arrest warrant for had by that time been issued. Detectives and legal experts had further conferred and decided that a warrant was now of the utmost importance because under French law at that time, a suspect could only have been detained for four hours without a warrant and Healy could have been released and gone to ground before Lancashire officers arrived if there wasn't one. By this time it was Friday July the 21st and Annette's devastated parents had bravely agreed to face the media. Choking back tears and holding Snowy, Annette's beloved white teddy bear, Mary told the assembled press, It's hard to describe how we feel. Words just fail and I still sit at the window waiting for her to come across the road on her bike. When we came to the house and she was allowed outside, she was in her element. She could then play with her friends whenever she liked and loved the freedom. She had so many friends, she would go round to them all, but if she was playing, even round the corner, she would always tell us where she was going. She was an outdoor person and would still be outside when it was raining, we just couldn't keep her in. When we saw her crossing the road, we thought she'd be back shortly for tea. She always came back for tea, and then afterwards had another half hour playing out. If anyone knows where this man is, this maniac, whatever he is, they should report it to the police. The sooner the police can get hold of this man, the sooner my daughter can be laid to rest. Brian Wade simply added between tears, We just want to lay a net to rest and get it over with and want to get back to a normal life somehow, but I don't know how. If anyone knows where this man is, please come forward because it might be your child next. We don't want anybody else to go through what we're going through. The bottom has just dropped out of our lives. The couple also thanked the police for their tireless efforts, people across the country for the enormous support they'd received, and for the hundreds of cards and notes of condolence, three quarters of which had come from people they'd never met. Meanwhile, a heavy police presence was still maintained in the Carlton and Poulton areas in case he didn't realise he was being sought and had managed to slip back to the UK and had gravitated back to the Blackpool area as he'd done before, but unsurprisingly, he failed to turn up back in the area. Now, it was a long shot, granted, but you never know. I mean, Rambo went back to the town, didn't he? 
Okay, he had an M60 with him when he did, but you never know. People living in the community had in the meantime inundated the Fleetwood incident room with possible sightings of the scruffy wannabe Native American who'd made himself such a familiar figure in recent days and who was now Britain's most wanted man as a 50-strong team of officers sifted through the list of sightings that had poured in. Every possible sighting was of course checked but led to a dead end. Mistaken identities caused by the pall of fear that still hung over the area. Then eight days after Annette's murder, and a full week since the last confirmed sighting of Healy, on Wednesday the 26th of July, there was a dramatic breakthrough. Special branch officers from Kent Police stationed at Dover, monitoring returning passengers from the cross-channel ferry looking for suspected drug runners, spotted a familiar figure stepping off the P&O ferry Pride of Hythe when it docked there at 3pm after arriving from Boulogne. They recognised the face of the scruffy-looking man from the photographs and bulletins that had been widespread over the previous few days and watched as he went through immigration at Dover's Eastern Dock Terminal before approaching him and striking. The man was arrested, stripped and placed into a paper suit and his clothing was retained for forensic examination. It was, of course, John Jeffrey Healy. Once arrested, Healy was transferred to Dover's Ladywell Police Station, where he went without any fuss, telling officers, I've been in France for two weeks, and this has ruined my holiday. Unreal, eh? Detective Superintendent Ashton and a team of officers from Lancashire Police immediately made the 300-mile-plus dash from Fleetwood to collect Healy into their custody and transfer him back to Lancashire for questioning, where on the return journey, Healy simply stared out of the car window and barely said a word all the way from Kent to Fleetwood. This suited police down to the ground, though. With the strict regulations surrounding arrested suspects, that clock begins ticking when the first question under caution is asked, and they wanted Healy back in Lancashire before any interview began. Upon arrival in Lancashire, though, a different tack was formed, and Healy was taken to Blackpool Police Headquarters instead of to Fleetwood. News of his arrest had filtered back up north long before he arrived back in the county, and an angry crowd of people had gathered outside Fleetwood Nick waiting for his return, some of whom had been there for several hours. He was interviewed in Blackpool over a course of three hours, where he refused to say a single word to any questions put to him, a pattern he was to maintain over the subsequent days and weeks. With enough evidence to bring charges already though, items in Healy's possession were added to these that were linked to the murder scene, including Annette's gold-coloured recorder bag, but of the murder weapon itself, there was no trace and it was never found. The following day, in a hearing at Fleetwood Magistrates Court, and just ten days after the brutal rape and murder of Annette Wade, John Healy appeared handcuffed to a police officer and flanked by another three where he was charged with the schoolgirl's rape and murder. The surplus of police officers flanking him was again set as a response should anyone try and rush and attack Healy as once again a large crowd was waiting outside the court building and there were angry scenes as the van containing Healy both arrived and left. Dozens had tried to rush into the court after it but were ejected by police such was the angry public feeling about such a horrific crime.
During the five-minute hearing, Healy stared at the floor for much of it, speaking only four times to confirm his name, his age, his address, and that he understood the allegations against him. Prosecuting counsel Derek Shelley applied for Healy's remand in custody for three grounds under the Bail Act. He said, He was due to appear before Blackpool magistrates on three other matters last week and is now unlawfully at large having absented himself from that court and is subject to arrest in any event. He should also be kept in custody for his own protection because of the vast amount of publicity this case has received and the amount of feeling that has been engendered. Healy's appointed solicitor Andrew Greensmith made no attempt to oppose this but had taken the unusual step of asking reporting restrictions for the case be lifted. Although he faced the murder charge, Healy had already formulated an alibi, as magistrates were told that he'd claimed he'd spent the day of Annette's murder at Blackpool Pleasure Beach. Here, while strolling around, Healy claimed he'd remembered seeing a tourist with a video camera and believed that he may have been caught on film, thus providing him with a time-stamped and dated alibi. Now this obvious bollocks was indeed that, but Healy stuck to this story and appealed for the mystery cameraman to come forward and exonerate him. No one, of course, emerged to support this story though. Refusal to admit any guilt in the face of overwhelming evidence was nothing new for John Healy, as one solicitor who'd represented him many years before on a different charge testified to. He later claimed... He was caught with a penknife he'd taken from a Preston shop by the store detective. It was in his pocket with a price still on it. Time after time he said he hadn't done it. He just sat there for 30 minutes denying the obvious. Then he went back to the cell saying that he'd sacked me, which I wasn't unhappy about. He's got mad staring eyes. On August the 16th, the Wade family and friends of the couple and Annette crowded into the small chapel at Carlton Crematorium to say their final farewells to the child that had been so tragically taken from their lives. A cortege of police officers lined the entire route from the Wade home in Blackpool Old Road all the way along Blackpool Road and Stocks Lane to the crematorium where senior officers from across the resort joined mourners for the service led by the curate of St Chad's Church in Poulton, Canon Carl Berryman. The chapel was filled with dozens of floral tributes, including a white floral tribute spelling Annette from locals, wreaths from Lancashire Police and the owners of Woodhouse Farm, and two white teddy bears made of flowers that had been created in memory of Annette's beloved Snowy, who'd been placed to rest with her. Paying tribute to Annette's short life, Canon Berryman described Annette as a lively outgoing little girl with a ready smile and trusting kind nature. The whole community had learned of her horrific death with great sadness and shock, he said, and was united in their sympathy and support for Mary and Brian Wade in the dark weeks and months ahead that they were surely to face. He told the couple, No one can ever take those short years away from you because they're there in your heart. She is always with you. Nine months later, on April the 25th, 1990, John Jeffrey Healy went on trial at Liverpool Crown Court accused of the rape and murder of Annette Wade, to which he pleaded not guilty. Prosecuting counsel Mr Richard Enriquez QC told the court, 
On the afternoon of July 18th last year, Annette was murdered on farmland some distance from Woodhouse Farm, Blackpool Road, Carlton, between Blackpool and Poulton Lafide. She died as a result of four stab wounds, three to the neck and one to the left side of her chest. She'd also suffered a severe sexual attack. She was raped. The prosecution alleged that the murder of Annette Wade was committed by the defendant John Healy. There is a volume of evidence which we submit establishes beyond any doubt that he committed the crime. Then the jury of six men and six women learned of what was known about Annette's final movements and heard the harrowing catalogue of sexual assault and injuries that the girl had suffered before the final indignity of her body being set alight. They learned how a piece of blue fabric curtain material that was found wrapped around Annette's body matched material that was found in the squat in Corn Street where Healy had told detectives that he was living and how knife marks on this curtain matched knife marks on Annette's t-shirt. A steady succession of witnesses then appeared before the court to tell of the stranger dressed as a Native American who'd so memorably appeared in the small community the previous summer and now who faced them in the dock. They learned of the distinctive clothing that locals remembered Healy wearing, striped trousers, Dr. Martin's boots, and blue jeans with a Union Jack patch, all that were discovered partially burnt on Annette's funeral pyre. They heard from forensic experts of the DNA stains found on this said clothing that belonged to Healy and pointed firmly to him being the killer, and of the discoveries of tins and bottles containing his fingerprints, and the old Holborn tobacco that the accused habitually smoked, all being found nearby to the scene. Add to this the passport that he'd bought in Poulton, the stolen mini-metro and sighting by Joan Bennett's, the tattoos, the feathered headband, the wild staring eyes, and the many people that he'd seen and spoken to in the area, and it added up to the inescapable conclusion that Healy was that man in the wanted pictures in every newspaper across the country. And he still stuck to his pathetic story and claimed that somewhere there was a holidaymaker's video that showed him late that afternoon buying a burger from a stall near the gold mine ride on Blackpool's Pleasure Beach. One witness, Margaret Murray, testified to the court that in the days leading up to Annette's murder, she'd been walking near to Cotton Hall Plainfields with her husband when she saw a scruffy man chatting with a young girl and had felt uneasy enough about them that the couple had kept their eyes on them for some time to ensure that the child was alright. Margaret went on, My husband and I discussed what we'd seen. The girl was very young and we decided to sit on a bench to keep them in our view. We wanted to because we didn't like the look of him. We felt it was our duty to keep an eye on her and made up our mind to sit there and look what happened. If they got up together, we agreed we would go over and make some pretext about asking the girl where she was going. It was difficult, the man might have been a relative, but we decided we must still sit here and see the girl was alright. My husband and I felt happier when she pedalled away. Margaret then identified Healy and Annette as the couple that they'd seen. Midway through the trial, court staff, legal counsel, judge and jury were all transported on the 120 mile round trip from Liverpool Crown Court to Carlton to see for themselves the exact scene where Annette was raped and murdered. Handcuffed between two prison guards and flanked by a team of police officers, Healy was taken to the scene of the despicable crime in a prison van. 
Yet the streets of Carlton were almost deserted, as though residents wanted no reminder of the horror that had bestowed itself upon the community that previous summer. More than two dozen uniformed police officers ringed the village, and a tight police cordon was placed over the entrance to Woodhouse Farm, as the whole courtroom was driven into the farm grounds and made their way a quarter of a mile to the ditch where Annette's smouldering body was discovered. Although the thicket, and along with it Healy's makeshift den, had long since been cleared away by Bob Aspden, the enormity of the horror that had happened there was not lost on the members of the jury, and each bowed their heads in unison to say a silent prayer for Annette. The procession was then led around the quiet Carlton and Poulton areas, where they were pointed out seven different locations that had been heard referred to and described over the trial's initial weeks before returning to the courtroom. Over the next few days, they were to hear Healy in all his bizarre ramblings about claims he was related to royalty and his Native American ancestry, right along to his pathetic far-fetched denials and explanations full pelt as he took the stand in his defence. He was to argue that all 39 witnesses who'd given evidence testifying to seeing him in the Carlton area were either mistaken or lying and that there was a mimic at large. He'd never lived in a den in the Goose Meadow area of Woodhouse Farm. Police had planted items covered in his fingerprints in the hide. The recorder bag had been bought by him from a second-hand shop, but just to sheath his knife in, this kind of crap, you know. The blue curtain with the knife marks that was found in the squat was his, he admitted, but it was nothing more than a remarkable coincidence that a section of the same material should be found wrapped around a net because he claimed he'd never met her, and he emphatically claimed, I am no psychopath. The jury folks, surprisingly, did not believe a word of these claims, and on the 15th of May 1990, took less than two hours to find John Jeffrey Healy guilty on all counts that he faced. As he sat defiantly and impassively in the dock with his arms folded, Mr Justice Kennedy told him, you have been convicted on overwhelming evidence of murdering a nine-year-old child. Even if it were not compulsory for me to do so, I would have no hesitation in sentencing you to imprisonment for life. In court to hear the verdict were Annette's still devastated parents, Brian and Mary Wade. Brian had attended every day of Healy's trial, wanting and needing to be there to hear every aspect of his only child's final movements. He had even been forced to endure glares across the courtroom from Healy in the dock, who had even had the gall to pull his tongue out at Brian until a screen was erected between them, preventing him from doing so. Mary had resisted attending, but was there on the day of the verdict to hear the sentence. Healy did not even glance at them as he was taken down to begin his life sentence. Speaking to the Lancashire Evening Post after the hearing, Brian said, What I thought of him could not be printed. I admit being there wasn't easy, but it was just something I felt I had to do. I had to see it through, and I said right at the start that I would, because I wanted to come here every day to hear it for myself. Certain things bring everything back, the little everyday things in life. It's worse if you've nothing on your mind or you're doing nothing, just sitting there thinking about what we'd be doing if Annette was alive, like picking her up from school. I would say he should hang, 
the do-good has always tried to prevent the death sentence being brought back, but I am sure that if something similar happened to them, they would change their minds. Mary added, Annette was an outgoing, very friendly girl. She would talk to anybody. We warned Annette 24 hours before this happened not to talk to strangers. She always wore a don't talk to strangers badge and was very proud of it. But it's very difficult for children. Some are very adventurous, more adventurous than others. There is no doubt about it. If it's proved that a person has committed a crime for an offence like this, he should hang. With that, with John Healy spending the rest of his life in prison, reviled by prison staff and fellow inmates alike for his disgusting, despicable crime, Mary and Brian were left to try and rebuild their lives, with a very valid and positive reason to do so. Because five months after John Healy was convicted of murdering their daughter, Mary Wade gave birth to a baby boy. The brother Annette was sadly never to know, perhaps a comforting gift from her to her parents. John Healy remains in prison to this day for his unspeakable crime, where with some luck he will take his last breath and never ever be free again to even run the risk of inflicting such horror. Every week I cover different crimes and once I become familiar with the tale I think this is one of the worst that I've ever learned of and then I reflect that back on the show and this really is no exception. The picture of Annette that will be available on the show's Instagram page, well she looks like any normal happy schoolgirl really, full of character, full of life, so how tragic is it that her trust was taken and played upon by such an evil predator? I mean... For her to lose her life in such an awful way is bad enough anyway, but to be burnt on a funeral pyre, absolutely despicable, the real stuff nightmares are made of. The pictures of Brian and Mary Wade at press conferences and the image of two floral teddy bears created to represent Annette's beloved teddy bear that was buried with her, well those are two things among the many about the case that I will never forget. How could you ever, eh? There are no reports that Healy was suffering from any mental illness at the time of the murder, even though he had in the past checked himself in as a voluntary patient to a psychiatric facility. But from what we've learned of his behaviour, the fantasies about being related to royalty or part Native American, happily living rough, feathers in the headband, all that jazz, he seemed to have a few issues, wouldn't you say? Seemingly always destined to be a bad one, he took a much more sinister turn from his usual petty crime and thefts through the summer of 1989, as we can gather through his loitering and leching and attempting to entice kids to watch porn with him. It was almost as though he was on a collision course building up to something. It was always going to end in something. And sadly, the murder of little Annette was that something. Monster is really the only word I could come up with to describe such an individual. At least one I could say on air anyway. Annette rests today in a neat plot in Carlton Cemetery. It's still lovingly tended by the family that she was taken from 30 years ago. Sadly never getting to meet her brother or growing up and having a family of her own. Not much information is available about Healy following his conviction, but he certainly is not what I'd like you to remember from the episode, apart from your hopes that he is still as reviled in prison as he was from day one of his life sentence. He must be, he's got to be, hasn't he? 
Now I'd like you instead to remember the little girl who headed out to play one afternoon, who did nothing except be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Remember Annette and her family, and as much as you can, please always keep your children as safe as you can. An awful case this one, isn't it, eh? One of the worst that I've ever covered here on the show, and it's proper got to me. What do you guys think about it? As ever, you can get in touch with me through the usual channels should you wish to hear your views on the case featured here today, or there's a thread with the episode link that's placed up in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group should you wish to there. Check out the episode show notes for several articles and newspaper features concerning the case, plus sources that I've used to create the episode. And there are images referring to this week's case up in the show's Instagram page. It doesn't seem right to say like them as such, but it does put into context Annette and her tragic story. Although it's tragic, I hope that her tale is one that you found informative and a memorable one. I do anticipate getting some feedback from you guys concerning the case. That's about it from me for this week folks, but I shall be back next week with part one of this series' trilogy episodes. It's a bit of a celebrated case I think, but it's one that I've always wanted to go down the rabbit hole for, so I'm doing it next and I hope that you can join me for it. Until we next speak then, I've been, I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times and thanking you all very much for joining me today. Take care folks and goodbye for now.